Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Content to Classroom, a podcast created and produced by the Virginia Council for the Social Studies, where we connect expert analysis on a specific topic related to social studies and then supplement that analysis with guidance from master teachers on how to apply it in the classroom. I'm your host, Sam Futrell, and we are so glad that you are joining us today. I am very excited to welcome you all to today's episode, which will be the second installment of our episodes on the Salem Witch Trials. I was lucky enough to participate in a national endowment for the humanities seminar this past summer with Endicott College on the witch trials. And y'all, if you have not gone and looked up or participated in a national endowment for the humanities seminar during the summer, do not walk, run, okay, to that website um, and bookmark it in like your tabs because I am telling you when the applications open back up, you are going to want to apply. You can get paid to learn about history. It is so cool. Um, you have to do it. Okay. So keep listening to this episode, but while you're listening, scroll through and start browsing through like what's going to be happening there next summer. So two of the professors, uh, who taught my seminar, um, and who actively teach classes at Endicott College in Massachusetts were kind enough to join me today to talk about the historical implications of what happened in Salem and the surrounding area in 1692. Dr. Mark Herlihy started at Endicott College in 2001 as an associate professor of history. He teaches the Salem Witch Trials, Boston History, Public History, and American Suburbia, among other courses. He has presented papers at meetings of the American Studies Association, the Organization of American Historians, and many other prestigious locations. Currently, he is completing a book on the history of Revere Beach, and Dr. Hurley, he has been very active in the New England Historical Association and served a term as president of the organization. A native of Winchester, Massachusetts, he earned a Bachelor's of Art in English at Tufts University and a Master of Arts and Doctorate of Philosophy in American Civilization at Brown. And joining us again for this episode is Dr. Elizabeth Matelski. Dr. Matelski is a New England transplant from the upper Midwest. Her teaching interests include American multiculturalism, popular culture, and incorporating digital technologies into the history classroom. In addition to teaching American history, she also created the Public History Concentration for Endicott's history majors. And she is currently editing a book chapter on global beauty and conducting research on a book on Robin Mingo, an enslaved black man after whom Mingo Beach is named. I am thrilled about this episode as it highlights everything that I love to study about social and cultural history, including race, gender, and of course, witchcraft. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. So let's get started. All right, Mark and Liz, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to Content Classroom. Happy to be here. Um, and so, Liz, we just, if you were able to listen to our last episode, uh, you know that uh, Liz, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Matelski, she is the, um, she is a professor at Endicott College. Um, and she just was able to give us that amazing retelling of the Salem Witch Trials. And, but Mark, you are new 
to the podcast. So I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your teaching background and how you sort of got connected to the Salem Witch Trials. Yeah, sure. Uh, I actually taught high school English for a number of years uh, before going on to graduate school and earning uh, advanced degrees in American studies. But when I taught high school English, I didn't teach the crucible. I, I had read the crucible in, in high school. Uh, and for a lot of high school students in Massachusetts and elsewhere in the country, that's their introduction to the Salem witch trials. Uh, I grew up maybe 25 miles from Salem. Uh, I grew up in Winchester, Massachusetts, but never really visited the city and never really learned much about the Salem witch trials. Uh, but when I began teaching at Endicott in September 2001, actually the week of 9-11 was my first week at the college. Uh, I was uh, teaching the Salem Witch Trials. The course was on the books. I was hired during the summer. And, uh, you know, you never learn about something more quickly than when you have to teach it. So, so I, I got up to speed as best I could to teach it that first time. And uh, you start to realize, wow, there's a vast literature uh, on this topic. It's like a cottage industry. There, there are constantly new books new documentaries coming out on the Salem Witch Trials. Salem Witch Trials has had an enduring kind of popular uh, and academic uh, following. So uh, anyway, so I just kind of, you know, I got through that first offering of it. And, and over time, you know, I, I became, I, I developed my expertise uh, on the subject. And, uh, and I actually, even before I taught it, I, I indicated, I remember when I spoke with uh, the person who hired me that, I thought it would be a good idea in the latter third of the course to look at modern and 20th century instances of hysteria and scapegoating and witch hunts, et cetera. So, because uh, that was really my forte, uh, US history, modern US history. But so anyway, so that's added an interesting dimension to the course. I know when Liz teaches it, you know, she, she includes that dimension as well. And that, that is, we'll talk more about that in, in the course of the podcast, but. But that's a little bit about kind of how I came to teach the course and, and how I uh, approached it uh, from the get-go. Great. Well, we're so happy that you're here and able to join us. Uh, and, you know, I think that what you're talking about is what really happens like when any of us teach any sort of subject, we kind of take our own sort of nuance um, to it and bring mm -hmm. in our own strengths. And I think in that way, it's a really a really good way to like personalize history um, for our students and to connect it for us, but to also just add dimensions to these topics and to really, uh, you know, make sure that they resonate with students and show that they kind of go beyond the 17th century, at least with the Salem Witch Trials. Um, so I actually met both of you uh, through the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, Summer Institute on the Salem Witch Trials, Their World and Legacy. And uh, if any of our teachers who are listening don't know, the National Endowment for the Humanities actually has summer institutes uh, that are all across the country through different colleges, universities, and nonprofits, where you can actually take courses on different subjects and you get paid to do this. I mean, it is amazing. Um, and so I was actually able to take uh, the course with Liz and Mark on the Salem Witch Trials and we just really dove into all of the um, incredibly multifaceted aspects of the trials 
both um, during the 17th century and like Mark was saying, how they resonate today. Um, so Liz, I'm wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about, you know, what was that process like to go through the NEH um, and then get your program accepted? Well, I have to say it was a little intimidating because I had never applied for a federal grant before. Um, and at Endicott, we had never um, gotten an NEH grant before either, but our colleague Charlotte, who you met through the, um, the seminar, came to both Mark and myself and said, hey, I think we should apply for a grant and I think it should be this one. And I think it should also be about the Salem Witch Trials. And so here you go. You know, knowing that Mark and I were kind of the content experts and she um, being really familiar with the, the literature of the era. So it, you know, it was a lot of work, um, a lot of research, a lot of teamwork um, and, and that teamwork was probably the, the best part of it, getting to collaborate with folks from different disciplines and different departments to kind of imagine what this might look like. Um, we had a really great project director that we worked with at the NEH named Rebecca Boggs. And she really walked us through the whole, I mean, she championed our cause and our topic the entire way and gave us really great feedback to help us to be as successful as we could with our proposal. And, um, you know, when we got it, it was just kind of like a, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. Um, and maybe a, a bit of a blessing in disguise was that it had to be delayed for a year because of COVID. And, but also we had to switch then pivot to the remote, um, remote structure as opposed to having you all come to Salem and see the sites and see the, the museums and things like that. So it really, uh, I think from start to end has been a really rewarding and educational experience. And certainly we look forward to being able to offer the program again, if the, the NEH thinks that it's, um, you know, continue, continues to be something worthy to support. And, and I would just add, I remember we, you know, as we were developing our application, we, we looked at uh, other programs that had been funded and a lot of them uh, had a strong connection to place. I think there was one on the Hoover Dam, there was one, one or, more, you know, uh, based in New York City and, and you know what I mean? And, and, and we, we realized that, gee, we're in Beverly, Massachusetts. We border Salem. We border Danvers, which was formerly Salem Village, which, which is really where the most important events happen. Uh, let's leverage uh, our location. So, so we built into the program uh, visits to historic sites in both communities. Uh, and we, we made a connection with the Phillips Library of the Peabody Essex Museum, and they were willing to uh, share, you know, actual trial transcripts with the NEH participants. They, they were they were on board uh, early on, and uh, so anyway, so so that was an important uh, piece to our to our proposal. You know, the primacy of place, the importance of place. Yeah, and I think that you all, <laughs> I, you know, as Liz mentioned, ironically place was, you know, sort of the main sort of uh, theme of these different institutes. And normally we, those who get accepted, would get to go there. And this time we didn't. But I think that you and Liz really handled that so well. Um, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit later in how you sort of brought Salem and Danvers and Beverly to the students, you know, virtually. And I think that that was really, really helpful and really impactful. Um, and I'll just say too, that 
as you know a participant in the in the whole institute it was just amazing i would recommend it to anyone um and it was a really really incredible enriching experience best part of my summer so far and i can say that because I just got back from vacation and <laughs> and I'm not saying that because our car broke down going back from vacation and I'm stuck in central North Carolina at the moment, but really it, it was um, the best part of my summer and everybody should uh, apply for the next year's uh, next year's institute. Well, Sam, we really appreciate, you know, your kind words, but but these these programs attract uh, really motivated, you know, middle school and high school teachers. Some of the programs, uh, you know, cater to, you know, K through 12 and, and, and even teachers who teach elementary school levels. But ours was pitched to, to the middle school and high school teachers. And what, what a great group we had. And we had over 100, you know, applications. So, so we were able to really identify the uh, group that was, was really motivated and, and really brought uh, so much to the program. We learned a lot from, from the participants themselves. Yeah, and I mean, again, I could talk about just the Institute all day long, just because it was so wonderful, but we did, we had such a great group. And I think that, you know, it is a competitive process, I think, to apply to these institutes, but it's really worthwhile. And the NEH makes it so accessible too with everything online. So highly encourage anyone who's a K through 12 teacher to check that out next year. And I will put the link for that in our show notes as well. Um, so I thought we could start sort of simply, you know, at the, the overall thing that we sort of started with in our, you know, we called it which camp or which school. <laughs> um, so the kind of the first thing we started with in which camp and which school was like, what is a witch hunt? So Mark, what do you think a witch hunt is? I think a witch hunt is, is a moment in time, a moment in history when a population uh, is experiencing fear. Uh, there's a fear that, that, that there's an enemy within. There's a fear of internal subversion that people around us or there are forces around us that might be uh, kind of working against us and threatening us. And that was certainly the case during uh, you know, the Salem witch trials. Uh, when uh, a number of people confessed to uh, having consorted with the devil un under duress. And the first who confessed was, was Tichiba. And there's evidence that she was uh, you know, physically attacked and, and really that her confession was coerced. But when, when she confessed and then others confessed, uh, it just confirmed people's worst fears. And, and so there was this uh, hysteria that developed. And, and, and later on, in the seminar and in, in, and in the course, both Liz and I teach, we, we talk about the climate in the United States following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the internment of Japanese Americans. So there's this fear that, uh, again, we're, we're under attack uh, and somehow there are forces with respect to the, the Pearl Harbor, Japanese Americans within the United States, there was this notion that somehow they themselves uh, were working against us and we needed to you know, intern them, et cetera. And, and, and Liz is, is really an expert on, on McCarthyism. She, she could speak to that uh, you know, during the program as well. Uh, that was another moment when there was this fear that you know, communists were in our midst and, and undermining our, our system of government. They had infiltrated the highest reaches of government, the State Department. Uh, if you believe what Senator McCarthy was saying in, in that 
famous speech uh, in Wheeling, Virginia. But uh, so that's 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 what I think a witch hunt is, and and it's not just that that fear. It's people act on that fear. They start targeting uh, those that they suspect are doing them harm, uh, and uh, those people who are uh, tar targeted, uh, they're they're. Uh, they're isolated, they're, they're, their lives are in peril in some cases, uh, and it's, it's a frightening period for them. And, and they lose liberties, right? Uh, think of those Japanese internees, 120,000 people rounded up, put in these remote uh, internment camps uh, out west, uh, in some cases for, for three to four years. So just imagine what, what that must have been like. And I think too, one of the ways in which these witch hunts get even more in feverish pitch is when the enemy is somehow invisible. If you can't tell the difference between friend and foe. So if we think about 1692, we might have our own ideas about what witches look like, right? Green skin, pointy noses, warts, whatever, black cats. And certainly, in colonial America, there were ideas about kind of a physical witch, but it was more, you didn't know if your neighbor was a witch. Um, and to think about post-World War II, you didn't know if your neighbor was a communist. There wasn't a way to just by looking at them. And so that's, I think, where the, the real terror and the hysteria um, mounts from is that you're not able to tell the difference between who might harm me and who might be my friend. And the way in which people and leaders in particular act in these moments can, can really be pivotal. And, and of course, during the Salem witch trial, Samuel Paris, he was the minister of Salem Village, and he thundered from the pulpit in the meeting house in Salem Village, if ever there were witches, men and women in covenant with the devils, here are multitudes in New England. He also said, we are either saints or devils. The scripture give us no medium. In other words, you're either on the side of the devil or of God. You can just imagine people sitting in that small meeting house, just kind of looking around at, at their neighbors, even family members and wondering, well, what, what side are you on? And, and how that kind of rhetoric just uh, uh, ratcheted up the fear and the hysteria. Yeah, and you know, I think Samuel Paris is a good uh, historical source for teachers to look at in the classroom just because he's so extra. It's like, no one asked you to give that sermon, Samuel Paris. Like, you know, I mean, he really is, he's, he, as we kind of talked about in the seminar, he is creating these sort of divisions. He's polarizing um, the community. And I think he is a really good example of that sort of uh, portraying this invisible enemy as being omnipresent, you know, within the community and that sort of ratcheting up uh, the tensions uh, in Salem and, and the uh, surrounding areas. So how, Mark, I'm curious, how did events in Salem compare to witch hunts in Europe during the 16th and 17th centuries? Because we know that there were other witch hunts that have been happening during this time period, is Salem sort of an aberration or is does it have some similarities uh, to these other witch hunts? Well, it's certainly an aberration in terms of uh, witch hunts in the United States, uh, you know, in terms of the number of people who were 
executed 19 uh, in the Salem witch trials. One, and then an additional one was pressed to death and five died in jail. Those 19 who were executed, those 19 convicted witches who were executed, uh, that was more than the, than the total number of witches executed throughout the American colonies uh, during the colonial period. So, so the Salem witch trials are, are really unusual uh, in, uh, in the colonies. Actually, and for other reasons too, and during the Salem witch trials, if you confessed, your life was spared. They, they wanted to keep you alive so you could name names and, and, and uh, turn in other uh, witches. But in other witch hunts uh, in colonial America, if you uh, confessed, you, you were uh, often executed. So, so that was another important difference. So when I teach the course, I don't do this all the time, but, but sometimes at the very beginning, uh, you know, I, I kind of ask students just as a way to establish kind of baseline knowledge about what they know or think they know about the Salem witch trials. And, I, and, and I'll say, well, so how were, how were witches executed during the Salem witch trials? And a lot of them think that they were burned at the stake. Uh, and that's, that's not true. They, they were hanged. But in Europe, uh, except for England uh, and some other countries, witches were burned at the stake. So students, and, and I think people in the general public had this notion that somehow the witches in, in Salem were, were, were burned at the stake. And then I asked too, uh, how many, about how many witches were burned, uh, were executed, sorry, in, in Salem. And, and they really don't have much of an idea. They'll say it was hundreds or something. And, and, it, and again, it turned out it was 19 who, who were executed. Uh, and I think they, they, they pick a higher number because uh, they, they have the sense that in Europe, things were a lot worse. And in fact, they really were. Between 1450 and 1750, there were an estimated 110 witchcraft accusations, uh, which resulted in, in an estimated 60,000 executions. So when you compare Salem to, to what was happening in Europe, uh, you know, it's, uh, I mean, just one death as a result of a witch hunt is, is, is unacceptable. But in terms of scale, uh, Salem, you know, it was a minor event uh, in world history, but it, it's, it has this outsized uh, influence and significance, I think, uh, in, in the American context. And that's something I think we'll, we'll talk about a little later, so. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting, you know, in terms of the scale, it's it's smaller in so many ways than um, the witch hunts in Europe. And I think we we discussed too that, you know, English witch hunts were um, a little bit more tame, you know, than mm -hmm. some of the witch hunts on the continent. Um, but still, the Salem witch trials has been so heavily debated by historians and Liz mentioned that during our last episode. Um, but in the seminar, we chose uh, Tad Baker's book, Storm of Witchcraft, um, to read as sort of our central text. Um, Liz, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about Baker's book and why you and Mark ended up going with that title. Well, there are, as you said, there's so many books and new books come out every single year. It's really hard to keep up with all of the scholarship. Um, and what I really liked about Tad Baker's book, it's, it's a relatively new book, I think maybe um, 2014, 2016, something like that. But what I really liked about the book is the, the, the central thesis. Um, and using this metaphor of a storm of witchcraft that 
um, as I mentioned in the previous uh, episode, there was just this, this brewing of outside and internal forces that really at any time, this could have been avoided, right? If just one kind of a sliding door moment, if, if this thing hadn't happened, maybe things would have turned out differently. So it is highlighting, I think in comparison to so many what other previous historians and biologists and sociologists and really anybody with a pulse has tried to figure out why did this thing happen? And they're really trying to find a tidy, just one sentence kind of thing, right? Uh, poisoned rye, the girls were lying. Um, this was a socioeconomic West versus East kind of thing. And Baker says, you know what? I don't think it's helpful to try to figure out the one reason because there wasn't just one reason. It's this storm, it's this, this uh, stew. It's, there, there's not just one reason or one cause for why all of this happened. Um, and uh, another thing that I like he, that he does in the book is that so many of these history, histories end in 1692, but Baker asks, well, what about 1694? What, what does Salem look like? What does it look like in 1704? So he really takes us beyond the trials to think about the aftermath, the consequences, and again, this idea of legacy. Um, so there were a lot of books for us to choose, obviously, and a lot of really good books. But I like that I like Baker's central thesis. Also, he's a local um, scholar. He teaches at Salem State, so that was a nice um, connection to make. Uh, and this was even just before we had to make the remote pivot. We weren't trying to save money by getting a local guy. Um, it just he had the the best book. Um, so that's really kind of what came what it came down to. Yeah, I really enjoyed um, Baker's book. It really, I mean, gave a, a totally comprehensive sort of uh, assessment of what happened in Salem. But then, like you said, you know, the the last chapter, I believe, is called "Which City?" Question <laughs> mark. And you know, and so he really looks into that idea of how does an area that is known for sort of this really horrible um, event, really tragic event in a lot of ways, then become sort of this, this um, mecca for people seeking out almost this dark history, you know, and then, but also people seeking out sort of a commercialized version of that dark history. Um, so he was, it was really interesting, highly recommend the book. Um, to anyone who is listening, if you're kind of looking for, I think it's also a good book for anyone looking for like that introduction to um, the Salem Witch Trials, because like you mentioned, Liz, it's, you know, he's not trying to prove just one thing. He's trying to give you the totality of um, everything that really encompassed uh, Salem during this time that led to the actual event of the trials. Um, so I kind of want to shift to talking about the Puritans for a little bit and kind of, you know, in that talking about life in the 17th century. Um, so we'll talk about, you know, women and gender and race as well. But I kind of just want to like get your feel mark for, you know, what was life like for the Puritans in Massachusetts? Well, I think there's this image of the Puritans as, as being very very repressed and uh, sober and, and dour, uh, but 
there's ample evidence that um, you know they they were very much like people today, right? They they had personalities. They had uh, they they had fun. They uh, broke rules. Uh, and, and if you look at you know records from that era. Uh, you see the, the constant infractions. And of course the Puritans, yeah, they were very religious. They wanted to create this uh, kind of city on a hill idea, right? This, this, this beacon for, for the rest of, rest of the world. I teach Boston history. So, so I, I, I'm very interested in, in John Winthrop and, and those early Puritans. And, and um, so they, they, they were trying to live a good life, but, uh, and Winthrop had this, this vision of this kind of model society, a moral beacon to, to the rest of the world. But there's all kinds of evidence that these Puritans and his followers, even members of that original uh, band of, of, of migrants uh, were breaking rules and, and in downtown Boston and, and I'm sure in, in Salem. Salem, by the way, is the oldest uh, colony in New England the oldest community in New England. I'm sure in both, I know, I mean, I know for sure in Boston and I bet for Salem, uh, there, were, there were public punishments at the whipping post or in the stocks uh, because people were, uh, again, uh, violating the rules that, that had been established uh, you know, for, for, for that society. So, uh, and they also had this, this view that, I mean, I'm sure, they, I'm sure they understood human agency because if you break a rule, it's, it's a decision that you make. Uh, but they had this idea, however, that uh, God and supernatural forces were kind of controlling everyday life. If somebody's crops failed, if one of your livestock died, there was the sense that somehow this was uh, not just a natural occurrence, but but maybe, uh, you know, they, they had uh, brought on God's disfavor. Somehow God was displeased with them in some ways, or of course, during the Salem witch trials that maybe one of their neighbors was uh, in league with the devil and trying to harm them. So, so there was this uh, view that uh, there were forces at play. Uh, like if there was a thunderstorm or lightning, you know, that was not viewed in, in scientific terms. Uh, it, it was an expression of kind of God's power or God's displeasure. So uh, anyway, uh, I, I, I don't claim any expertise on early Puritan culture. I'm more of a modern U.S. historian, but but that's kind of my, my understanding of, of Puritans. Liz may, may want to add to this or, or, or have an opinion herself. Uh, do you want to? Yeah, I think on? that what, um, what, what always surprises students the most, Mark, as you said, that the Puritans are not just this old, crotchety, dried up, old fuddy-duddies, right, that just wear black and are just totally somber, um, is, is that they were just people like you and I. And I think that one of, the, one of the challenges as a historian that we try to impart to our students is this idea of historical mindedness, that we really can't judge people in the past by our own values and standards. And so for students, they, they think about witchcraft and they might um, compare it to like vampires and werewolves and, and whatever today. Um, but to understand that in a world without science, in a world where you don't understand weather phenomenon or germs or just why bad things happen to good people, that idea that God has his hand in everything, um, that there's a fate, that there's a plan, that that was a kind of 
I don't know, just a comforting concept. Um, this idea of predestination, that everything was already planned out for you. And really, no matter what you did on this earth, you're either saved or you're damned. And, um, and so they're always just really curious about the world. They're always looking, the Puritans, they were always looking for signs about if I'm saved or not. Am I going to go to heaven? Am I going to, to go to hell? And for some, you can imagine this just becomes this all-consuming kind of quest that they're just all, and, and you're always just super curious about what your neighbors are doing because maybe are they saved or are they not? Um, and when I, when you think about the Puritans versus maybe the Chesapeake colonies where where you have plantations and large farms and your neighbors not right on top of you, you're not going to be as aware of what Goody Proctor did last night. Um, there's no privacy. In fact, you live close together for protection from indigenous tribes invading and things like that. So it's, um, it's just a totally different kind of world where there's no privacy, there's no sense of individuality. Um, but in that time period, they don't have ideas about self-determination or, or, you know, freedom or privacy or anything like that. That's, you know, that's, that's us today. We, we think about that and we think about them, the Puritans as being so backwards, but that was just their worldview. It's interesting. I was teaching a class last night and we were discussing Emerson's self-reliance and, and you think of some of the, the wonderful aphorisms in that, you know, whosoever must be a man must be a nonconformist. That's not something the Puritans would have said. There was this notion that somehow we, we, you know, we need to try to stick together and, and try to, you know, eke out an existence uh, in the new world. And it was, it was a very labor intensive uh, kind of life. I mean, they did find time for leisure activities and, and, and that, that's a myth that somehow the, the Puritans didn't have any fun. But at the same time, I would say too, that there was kind of a, you know, an austereness and a severity to, to, to their life and, and to their outlook on life. And, and of course, if, you, if you've ever walked through a colonial era cemetery uh, in New England, you see those gravestones, right, with, with the skull and bones, uh, you know what I mean? And, and there was, there was a, I read excerpts from sermons back then, and this was a, a sermon addressed to children, and, and there was this message like this, you know, hell awaits you unless you, you know, do good, hell awaits you, and there was this, there was this fear uh, of, of, of eternal damnation, you know what I mean? There, there was this sense that gee, uh, maybe that's that's where I'm headed. And you get that sense, you walk through these old graveyards, you get that sense. Of course, later on, the iconography of death changes and it, it's, you know, you see Grecian urns and, and Egyptian motifs, right? Things become a lot more stylized, but in the 1600s, uh, you know, you see these skull and bones and a very kind of, for, a kind of forbidding uh, image. Yeah. I, I think the Puritans are really fascinating. They, I, I kind of sort of reawakened some of my like fascination with the Puritans in the seminar because, you know, as Charlotte and um, Richard Godbeer actually, you know, talked about them, it, it was just very interesting to learn that, you know, they they definitely felt sort of the omnipresence of God, but they also felt the omnipresence of the devil. And like all of those things were so literal to them. So the concept of a witch, you know, existing within the community, that was something that was a real threat, as real as the, you know, native tribes that were adjacent to them, um, that they had been at war with, you know? 
And that sort of spiritual war, I think for them was even more important in many ways than those physical wars, because that could determine, you know, their, their eternal life. Whereas those physical wars really just determined their sort of life on this earth. Um, and, you know, the Puritans are really interesting. I think uh, Richard Godbeard talked a lot about how the Puritans are, you know, they're not these sort of like plain, you know, repressed people. He wrote a whole article about Puritan sexuality, which is really interesting too, um, that we won't dive into all of that today. But uh, the Puritans definitely, you know, I think that they, they saw the presence of witchcraft in their community as something, in my, in my opinion, and y'all can correct me if this is wrong, but in my opinion, it became something that was almost like, since the community as a whole was striving to be the city on a hill, they couldn't have something within it that could rot like the whole community itself. And so they had to really like find and cast out, you know, anything that was that threat. And so um, for them, it was very real and very present at any given time. Yeah, for sure. And when you think about um, who are the individuals most vulnerable to witchcraft accusations, it's those folks that just didn't fit the, the Puritan model. So you look at the original three women, Tituba, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, very diverse backgrounds, but all of them for thinking about we want to have the city on a hill and we've got some folks over here that are just dragging us down. Some historians have suggested that that was one strategy to kind of cleanse the community is to accuse them of being, I mean, consciously or not, but to accuse someone of being a witch, if only to be able to excommunicate them as a means to, um, you know, get rid of displaced people, to do something about the people that weren't going to church every day. Um, so that, and you know, one of the reasons why Salem is different is because it starts to creep, the accusations start to creep up the social ladder. But for most other communities, um, it's, it's the most vulnerable people in society that were those most often and most likely to be accused of being a witch. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect segue to just like talking about uh, those people in the Puritan society. So, you know, I think one, common myth maybe about the Salem witch trials or witch trials in general is that the only people who were accused of being witches were women. And that's not true. And that's not true in Salem. Um, but the majority of people accused were women. Um, so how, Liz, how do you think that gender sort of factored in to the witch trials? Uh, and again, one of the reasons why Salem is unique is you have a higher proportion of men being um, executed as witches than you would find in other places. Um, if we take the 19 plus one, 19 plus Giles Corey, uh, we've got um, like a 70-30 kind of, of divide there where it would typically be maybe 80-20. Um, elsewhere with, with women obviously still being those most accused and most, um, most executed. And I always say that it would just, it would be lazy to say, oh, it's because of patriarchy. Oh, it's because of misogyny. Um, the, the important thing to remember is when, when settlers, when, when English colonizers and Spanish and French and whomever, I mean, all of these societies, they all have their, their witches. 
when they came to North America, it wasn't like they were just able to perfectly recreate the world from where they had just come. Um, this is a varied place. It's, it's not just the English Puritans. You have others who are indigenous, um, people who arrived in voluntary African and, and Caribbean enslaved people. Um, and even the Puritans, they, they considered themselves to be more enlightened than other kinds of faiths when it came to women's place in their society. So they're not prescribing to like the, the Catholics would have said that women were a necessary evil um, and that they were more inherently evil than men um, and therefore more likely to submit to Satan. And so the Puritans really believed that women as well as men could share in this mystery of conversion in this, this oneness with Jesus Christ, this ultimate uh, salvation. But the, I mean, the simple fact is, is that more women, many more women than men were accused of being witches. And I think it, historians really admittedly kind of like the storm of witchcraft, there's not just one reason why, why you know, we, can, we can answer why women more than men, but a couple of observations I think can be made where um, women, were uh, uh, women gave birth to new life and therefore they seem to have the potential to, to be able to take that life away as well. Um, Western culture deemed women to be less rational than men. And, and when I say rational, it's not like, oh, you're being irrational right now. Rational being connected to the world of man and politics and law and, and the legal world. Whereas the, the it would be rational versus the natural world. So women would be closer to the natural world. And that's where magic happened. That's where the devil lived. That's where, um, you know, witches kind of held their sway. Um, also, even though women were not seen as inherently more evil than men, they were seen as weaker than men. And therefore they might unconsciously or um, unintentionally invite Satan into their hearts, or they might be more susceptible to the devil's temptation as the so-called weaker sex, where men believe they could more easily throw off that temptation. And then again, men, it's, you know, it's men who's, who, who are making up these rules, who are, who are defining the characteristics of the proper woman as submissive and accepting of that position. And so the stereotypical witch an aggressive older woman really represented the antithesis to that image. Um, but I think it's it's so key to remember that the women, the individuals who were accused of being witches, they, they are a minority, um, that most women in 17th century New England, they're not being accused of witchcraft. But if you step outside of that model, that mold of, uh, of that gendered hierarchy that the Puritans believed was, was ordained by God, that's when you really made yourself vulnerable to those accusations. Yeah, again, I think, you know, it's that, you know, individualistic like spirit, um, like combined with, you know, gender that really creates um, sort of targets like in the Puritan community, you know, like for Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and to Chippa, you know, uh, anything that separates them from sort of the norm. Um, and so I kind of want to shift then to talking about Tichuba for just a little bit, uh, because I think she is, um, at least for most of us, and I could be speaking out of turn, but I think for most of us, I think Tichuba is a central figure in the witch trials, if you grow up hearing anything about it. 
Um, and I think most of us have grown up thinking that Tituba is a black enslaved woman who brought sort of Creole mysticism into the Paris household. And that's where the girls sort of get their connection to witchcraft. Um, and Mark, can you just sort of break down for us how this is actually totally incorrect? Well, it is totally incorrect, but I, I think people have that view of Tichaba uh, in part because of the crucible, that, that, that opening of the play and, and in the film, uh, right? The girls at an appointed hour meet in the woods and, and Tichaba is, is kind of running this, this kind of witch's Sabbath, right? It's, you know, this, this pot going, I think, and, and Abigail Williams breaks the chicken's head and is, smears blood on herself. But Tichaba is kind of the one with, with who's, you know, chanting and, and she's uh, making these sounds. She, she's kind of running it in some ways. And, and there's no evidence at all that such a, such a meeting ever occurred. It's complete creative license uh, on Miller's part. Uh, it, it makes for a dramatic opening, but, but there's no truth to it at all. So uh, but it's not just that film, uh, as historians have, have noted, uh, Tichaba, uh, through other literary works about the Salem witch trials, uh, has been portrayed as this kind of, uh, racialized other who somehow, uh, kind of introduced witchcraft to the community. She's become a scapegoat, really. Uh, somebody who uh, introduced, uh, you know, voodoo, et cetera. And, and so, so she's been really maligned uh, in, in, throughout history. And, and, she's, and her, her very racial identity has been completely kind of misunderstood. Uh, Chadwick Hansen wrote a, a really great article that we used in the seminar uh, about how Tichiba's racial identity uh, has morphed over time from being a, a, an Indian woman from the Caribbean to becoming half Indian, half Negro, uh, to then becoming a full Negro in the crucible. Miller refers to her as the Black Witch. Uh, and, uh, and of course, a, a contemporary author, Maurice Condé, uh, refers to, uh, in, the, in the book's title, Tichiba, Black Witch of Salem. But there's no evidence that she was Black or African-American, she's from the Caribbean. Early documents in the Salem witch trials refer to her as uh, uh, an Indian woman. And of course she was, in, she was an enslaved Indian woman along with her husband, uh, John. Uh, and she was enslaved by, by the Paris family. She, she lived uh, in, in the Paris household at the parsonage. But uh, anyway, so, and, and of course what's, even worse is uh, a highly respected historian like John Demos, considered to be an, an authority on early American history, who's written some influential books on, on witchcraft, including one entitled Entertaining Satan. Uh, Entertaining Satan. Uh, he took that notion from the crucible or from some other source that Tichaba was black and uh, used it in his own writings for a while. He later, Maybe after reading Hansen's essay, he, he later kind of, you know, acknowledged that her racial identity is, is uh, it would be more accurate to say that she's Indian. But uh, so even historians have, have got it completely wrong uh, in terms of her racial identity. So she's become this figure into which people imbue their, their fantasies or their uh, or myths about the Salem witch trials. So 
she's she's a very pivotal figure. She was the first to confess, but it was under duress. She was she was trying to save her life, uh, but because she was she did was the first to confess, you know that 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 gives her a kind of heightened status, I think, in in, in the Salem witch trial story. But again, it was under duress. And there's evidence that she was physically abused, and 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 that confession was coerced. So, but Liz, Liz, you know, led a session uh, in the seminar, I think, on race and 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 Tichuba. Liz, do you want to add anything on Tichuba? Yeah, I think that Mark, you you put it really nicely that um, we look for a scapegoat, and. Um, and, and Chadwick Hansen, he writing in the early 1970s, really seems to suggest that these historians and literary figures, even though they might have been well-meaning and in today we might look at them and say they're quote unquote nice white folk or that they're white liberals and things like that, that they suffered from implicit bias, uh, from an unconscious bias, that it's it's very, easy to look for rational reasons to explain the unrational and for these historians and literary figures particularly those writing in the 19th and 20th early 20th centuries um, it became convenient to blame black magic on a black woman um, when in fact the magic had always been there um, english magic uh, Every, every society had its own magic. Every society had its own witchcraft. Every society had its own kind of evil entity. Um, so it's her, her identity. I mean, part of it is just kind of lazily, uh, lazily um, relying on what other historians had said. And I always liken it to a game of telephone that as we get further and further away from the original text, in this case, her arrest warrant, where she's referred to as in, uh, Tijuba, an Indian woman. The further that we get from that text, the more muddled the message can be, um, particularly if you're relying on these, these academics and um, uh, from earlier decades, earlier, earlier generations, um, who might have suffered from this implicit bias to just say, well, who can we blame? And I think that that's, that's See, you can see that trying to rationalize in so many um, biological treatises about the Salem trials, right? That the, the girls were tripping on, on a bad moldy bread or that they were having some kind of hysterical fit um, because of predestination. So there's a real urge to make this more tidy. There's an urge to associate this with a kind of like, oh, well, that, that explains it all. So if we can blame this on Tichuba, why did these girls start acting in this way? Oh, well, it must have been because Tichuba told them a story or Tichuba introduced magic to them. So for, for you know, she, and, and, and Mark, you said this as well, that for every generation she morphs and she becomes what we need her to be in that particular moment. And this is just a broader theme in history. When we have someone like Tichuba, about whom we really don't have a lot of information, um, it, it, she becomes a cipher for that particular generation that we in, in, imbue certain um, characteristics and personality traits and who was she and what did she do in the absence of having really any kind of solid historical truth. And you can see that for a lot of women, um, Betsy Ross, um, as an example 
that uh, when we don't have a lot of information on people, we create these myths about them. Um, and so as a historian, that's our kind of our number one job is to figure out what's real and what's not. And, and unfortunately, we know a lot less than we want to know about Tichiba because of her status as a, as a woman of color, as an enslaved woman, and also because this was the 17th century. We'll be right back after this quick break. If you're enjoying today's episode, we encourage you to follow the Virginia Council for the Social Studies on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so that you don't miss any of the programs and initiatives this fall. You can find us on all of those social media platforms under VA Social Studies, all one word. And now, back to the show. So Liz, I think that you're hitting on a really important point, which is, you know, something that you all really stressed within the seminar, which is reliance on the documents um, that we have access to, because, you know, reliance on those really is a way for historians to overcome their implicit bias in certain ways. Um, You know, if you read the document that says Tishuba, an Indian woman, it is difficult then to infer that she is a black woman or an African-American woman, you know, reliance on the text is so important. So um, you've done a lot of work with uh, primary sources and I'm wondering if you could just talk about how uh, a lot of the sources on the Salem Witch Trials are actually available and digitized uh, for us uh, and they're available online. Yeah, and one of the reasons why Salem does get so much attention is because we just have a lot of stuff. And in that way, it's a really unique 17th century moment in history. Um, Historians are drawn to topics where there's a lot of surviving primary documents. And we have close to, not me, but (laughs) in the world of history, there are, you know, close to a thousand documents, uh, original documents related to the Salem trials. And Sam, like you said, that these documents have been digitized and they have been transcribed. And I think this is probably the most exciting part for educators because then you don't have to read that 1692 handwriting, uh, uh, hurried uh, court stenographer, uh, uh, scratch scratch. Um, and they're hosted online. Um, all of the documents from the, the court documents, and these are gonna be testimonies and witness depositions. There's a, um, a handful of um, arrest warrants as well as some Um, back and forth, you know, actually being in the courtroom and they've all been digitized and they are hosted online by the University of Virginia. And I will, um, for the the episode notes, I'll provide you with some links to that. Um, So you can actually, you can see, you go to, let's say Elizabeth Proctor's documents and they're all, the metadata will will cross-reference every single document where her name appears. Um, It's just such a valuable and useful resource. And what I like a lot is that you can see the original scanned document next to the actual transcription. Um, The transcriptions themselves are still pretty challenging because this is 1692 and they're writing um, and and talking in a way that we don't do today. And the same thing, this is, these are legal documents. So there might be some legal jargon in there that the kind of the average person might not be familiar with. But um, thinking about bringing these digital sources into the classroom, um, I think a really great 
and low stakes exercise is if you were to copy and paste any of those transcriptions, let's say into a Google doc, into any kind of shared document. And you can have your students annotate the documents in the, in the comments. And that kind of low stake, close reading exercise will give students the opportunity to engage with these 17th century documents. And I also think give them the confidence that they can read these primary sources on their own, that this isn't something that's too tough, that they just take the time. Um, this gives them a tool and a strategy for how to interpret and to understand something that was written over 300 years ago. Um, there's another really great resource that was developed by um, the historian Margot Burns. And again, I'll, I'll provide that URL in the, in the notes for the episode that she's created a great resource. And there's a lot of how-to guides about primary source interpretation and some, um, because there are so many documents related to the trials, she has some great cross-referencing of these documents and just makes it really more palatable, really more understandable than just feeling overwhelmed by, wow, there are a thousand documents. How do I even approach this? What do I even look at first? Um, and with digital history, it's also bringing museum exhibits into people's living room. And, and just as an example, the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem um, last um, fall through, I believe, spring. I think that the, the exhibit ended last April. But they, for the first time in um, quite a while, did a specific special exhibit on the Salem Witch Trials. And they did a Matterport, um, which is like a 3D walk through it's if you've ever gone to a virtual open house in real estate and you can walk through the house they did that for their museum exhibit and you can zoom in on things it's augmented with some videos that the curator um uh, dan dan lipcam created um, and i think students you could have them do a scavenger hunt in that virtual museum or even write up their own museum review of the exhibit as an assignment so there's, our, there's so many ways to make this accessible just because of the technology that we have um, that I think is going to bring the Salem Witch Trials to an even broader audience than before. Great. I, I would just add quickly that the University of Virginia uh, site mentions that all the materials are free for non-commercial educational purposes. So, so teachers can avail themselves of these, these great documents. Yeah. And we'll be sure to link all of that in our show notes, as well as um, what Liz just mentioned at the primary source activity. Uh, she had us do that in the seminar, and it was extremely helpful and so easy. So uh, definitely something to bring into your classroom with any primary source text, but especially those really difficult ones, um, like those from the Salem Witch Trials. Um, so I know... Oh, yeah, I was going to say, Liz mentioned Margot Burns. We've actually uh, included her in our proposed institute uh, that we hope to host in person uh, in uh, July 2022. That would be another NEH-funded uh, uh, program. So it would be an adapted version of the one that we ran this past summer remotely. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. And so one of the other sort of aspects uh, of sort of the Salem Witch Trials' legacy that we looked into um, mm -hmm. in the seminar was, you know, how the Salem Witch Trials connects to other events in American history. 
where kind of like you mentioned, Mark, earlier, like with uh, mob mentality or mass hysteria. And obviously, Arthur Miller most famously wrote The Crucible when talking about the second Red Scare uh, after World War II. So um, Liz and Mark, both of you, I kind of want you to answer this question, but Liz, we'll start with you. When you teach this uh, in class, how do you sort of draw parallels between the Salem Witch Trials and the Red Scare? I like to use the Hollywood blacklist as my window to approach this with McCarthyism and the second Red Scare, kind of these two terms, I think get interchanged a lot. Um, but in 1947, the House Committee on Un-American Activities investigated Hollywood. Their, their primary goal was they wanted to identify if communist themes and messaging had infiltrated the movies. And when they didn't find any messaging in the movies, then they went after the people who made the movies themselves. And so they would ask in these trials that I think, well, I, they were congressional hearings, but they very much looked like a, a, a trial. Um, and I find so many parallels between what happened in the courtrooms in 1692 compared to that setting, that congressional hearing setting, where before you even took the stand, those that were interviewing you already had an idea if they thought you were quote unquote innocent or guilty. They, they already knew if you had been to a communist party meeting. Um, they already knew if you had some kind of sympathies with um, the New Deal, you know, things that they were now rooting out in 1947 and beyond as being so-called un-American and unpatriotic. And in order to avoid being blacklisted, not being able to find work in Hollywood and any kind of tangential um, um, entertainment field, you had to name names. And when I tell my students this strategy to avoid the blacklist, you can just see their eyes getting bigger and they just immediately make these connections between confessing to being a witch, apologizing for being a witch, and then naming the names of other witches. So in order to avoid the blacklist, you had to confess to being a communist. You'd have to say, I'm sorry, I was ever a communist. I'll never do it again. And oh, by the way, here's the name of other communists. And when I tell them that list without even, and this is you know weeks and weeks and weeks since we talked about Tituba's confession, um, they, they just immediately, are, they gasp, almost audibly gasp to think about the parallels, that guilt by association, that strategy for throwing other people under the bus um, in order to save your own hide, but then also that presumed guilt that before you even step at the bar, before you even get, take your, take your seat at the stand, um, the people in the room already have presumed you to be guilty. And um, in this case with the blacklist, we're not talking about execution. We're not talking about being strung up on Gallows Hill, but um, a number of people did have early deaths because of stress, job-related stress. And it's more, we're talking about more than just the livelihood of people. Um, but like Mark mentioned at the very start, when we talked about witch hunts, that this is just a, an egregious, um, affront to our civil, li civil liberties. And for this to have happened so close to World War II, um, I think that that made it even more glaringly atrocious. 
Yeah, and I would just add, and Liz has touched on, on a lot of this already, but one thing I emphasize when I, when I teach the course is that the Salem Witch Trials is it's, it's a cautionary tale. And, and it's, a, it's a, a, a clear example of, of what can happen when, when a society experiences fear and the state intercedes, the state gets involved. And, and as we saw in the Salem Witch Trials and in other witch hunts, the state has the power to deprive you of life and liberty, uh, right? People were executed during the, the Salem Witch Trials, but even those who weren't executed, just imagine you know, the stigma that, that they must have felt for the rest of their lives uh, or how they might've felt if they had accused somebody. Uh, you know what I mean? It, it can really uh, destroy communities. Uh, it can result in, in, in executions, like the loss of people's lives. Think of those internees following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, those Japanese internees for up to three or four years, deprived of the right to kind of live your life, to, to live in your home. Uh, they, had to, they lost businesses. Uh, they had to sell their possessions uh, you know, for, for whatever money they could get. And there's this really striking example. This, this woman had this beautiful china that she had received as, as a wedding gift. And, she was trying to sell what she could to, to make whatever money she could before she had to go to the uh, internment camp. And uh, she was offered a, just a pittance for it. And, and rather than accept that pittance, she smashed the china herself. She didn't want to give anyone the satisfaction of, of taking that china off her hands for uh, you know, a real pittance, but it can destroy lives. And during the, you know, the McCarthy era, uh, people lost their careers, their livelihoods. And as uh, Liz mentions, there were deaths due to stress. There were suicides. Uh, a great film uh, that I show clips of when I teach uh, the course is Guilty by Suspicion, uh, in which uh, there's a, a, an individual who, who takes her life, essentially. And there's an incredible ending scene uh, at one of the hearings. And, 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 it, and it really just harkens back to the Salem witch trials. There's this assumption of guilt. and uh, there's really no no due process. So anyway, so it's to me that the great legacy is that it's a a real cautionary tale about the power of the state in times of social unrest and fear and hysteria. I would also say, and we don't have a lot of time to get into this. It's it's a it's an important case study in how uh, history gets uh, commercialized, uh, right? How 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 events get remembered or or. Uh, uh, turned into an attraction. And, and I know, I'm sure some folks down in Virginia have come up to Salem and experienced it firsthand. But, but if you're ever up this way and you haven't been to Salem, it's worth having a look. And it's, it's worth visiting, of course, the, 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 the terrific historical sites related to the Salem witch trials that have been preserved and, and memorialized in a very uh, serious and dignified way. But uh, it's, it's really uh, interesting and, 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 and to me a little kind of disturbing to see how uh, such a tragic event like the Salem Witch Trials has been commercially exploited. There's all kinds of attractions related or, or, or uh, barely related to the Salem Witch Trials that uh, kind of capitalize on this, this signal event in American history. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we sort of have, we talked about this in class, and like you said, Mark, we don't have a lot, we don't have time to get into it, but it is interesting, you know, especially with the the aspect of dark history, and how, you know, that becomes um, an attraction 
uh, in a lot of ways for people. Uh, and uh, I think to the legacy of it being a cautionary tale is, you know, applicable in so many ways and in so many history classes, you know, you can, you can really use this as a case study um, in, you know, any history class. I was thinking I'm going to use it with my eighth graders this year uh, when talking about uh, show trials in um, Stalin's Russia. You know, I think it, there are so many connections because I think that, you know, it's such a, it's such a human event that, that really does replicate itself. Um, and like you said, Liz, earlier, in communities that are under duress um, and in communities that really have authoritarian figures that maybe are able to take a little bit more power than they should, like you said, Mark. So Liz, what about for you? What's um, kind of the legacy of the trials in your opinion? Well, like you were saying, the, the, the human interest of this um, and how fear gets turned against us um, as a cautionary tale. The, the Salem Witch Museum, as part of their exhibit, has um, this great wall and they have a, a math formula on the wall and it's fear plus a trigger equals a scapegoat. And they have examples all throughout American history post 1692 of, of what this has looked like. And you know, I tell all my history students that history isn't the story of how things get better over time. It's not necessarily the story of progress. We can't say, oh, look, we're just marching forward, forward, forward. We, we stumble, we, we take a couple steps back and then we take another step forward. Um, and that old adage, we learn, we study history so we can avoid our mistakes from, the, from past eras, it just doesn't hold true here. We don't seem to learn from previous eras mistakes. We, we've seen this demonstrated again and again with the Great Red Scare in the 1920s, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, the red baiting of McCarthyism in the HUAC trials with the LGBTQ community, with HIV AIDS, with Muslim Americans in the wake of September 11th, and most recently then with the Asian American community and COVID-19. It's just it happens again and again that fear continues to dominate our political rhetoric that we still look to specific groups, um, typically who are seen as other, um, whether they be Muslim or black or gay or Mexican American or Asian American for whom we can pin our troubles to and how that fear gets manipulated um, for certain groups. Um, um, you know, attainment of more power or, or other groups um, uh, being, being ostracized and, and um, you know, really being punished for these, um, I don't know, invisible, invisible fears. And hopefully, you know, I'm hoping that at one point we're going to figure it out. Um, and that's how I always end my classes, even though I have this little skepticism in my voice and a little bit of despair, I always encourage my students that, you know, they can be the ones to break the cycle. Yeah, I think that's so well said, you know, figure out and, you know, I think that's a, a really admirable goal for all of us as teachers, figure out how to teach your students to be the people who signed the petition for Bridget Bishop, not the ones who were accusing her in the courtroom. You know, like, so I think, or, and, and for uh, Rebecca Nurse, and, you know, I think all of these people who are, 
you know, like able to sort of stand up for these things in the communities. Uh, that's always, you know, the people to highlight as well when you're teaching this. So I, I think if you had to give each of you one tip as being kind of, I, I mean, I would say that you are Salem witch trial class experts, you know, like you have crafted these classes, these courses, and you're actually in the heart of where this is taught. You had to give one tip for a teacher who is going to teach this in their class. What do you think it would be? I, I would uh, remind folks that this topic is an elephant. And so you have to eat it one bite at a time. Um, it's taken me years and years and years and years to feel like I had a good grasp on the topic and I'm always learning more. Um, there's so many books, there's so many resources and, and it's hard to know what's good. So I think if you want to learn more about the topic yourself, look for books by historians that are published by an academic press. So if you look in the um, notes at the very beginning, you know, publication information, look for the publisher. We're looking for Oxford University Press. We're looking for Cambridge Press. We're looking for, you know, because anybody and everybody can publish a book about Salem and it might not be right and it might not be any good. Um, I would, if I get a second tip, I would also say to reach out to museums who can publicly present this kind of information with distance learning tools these days. You can find those museum professionals, particularly education directors who can zoom into your classroom. Um, so I'm thinking about the Peabody Essex Museum. I'm thinking about the Salem Witch Museum, um, so many others. That, that this is what they do all the time, right? So they can come, if you can't come to the museum, they can come to you. Yeah, I would just add, you know, uh, one of the testimonials for Tad Baker's book was that, you know, there, there've been many books written about the Salem witch trials, but few are worth reading. And, and yeah, it, there's a vast literature on the subject, but really, as Liz says, look for those texts that are, uh, again, from academic presses and, and, and that, uh, you know, have, the endorsement of, of, of scholars. There's a lot of popular history out there that's not particularly good. And I would just say another tip too is encourage students to uh, make connections between the Salem witch trials and, and other events in, in uh, more recent American history. It's something we've talked about already, but I think history is most interesting and relevant when we start to identify patterns uh, over time and, and, and similar dynamics. I mean, every historical event has its own set of forces and circumstances. They're all different in some ways, but if you start looking at certain events across time, you can definitely identify patterns. Uh, and and with, with respect to witch hunts, again, the power of the state and, and the human cost uh, of, of, of uh, people in power acting rashly, uh, responding to, to fear and in, in such ways that deprive people of, of life and liberty. It's, it's, uh, it happens again and again, and it's, it's tragic. Liz and Mark, are there any projects or events that you all are working on right now that you sort of want to plug um, before we leave today? Uh, Liz, we can start with you. I don't know if it's necessarily plug worthy yet, but I, um, I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm writing a book or doing research for a book about a man, a man named Robin Mingo, 
And he was born in the early 1660s and he died in 1748. Um, and Robin Mingo was an enslaved man in Beverly, Massachusetts. And one of the beaches that borders Endicott College's campus is named after him. And it's one of the only, if only public places um, in the North Shore named for a formerly enslaved man. And um, it's gonna be really three parts. Um, the first part is going to be biography kind of timeline of his life. The second part will be more public history about how did the beach come to have that name. Um, he died in 1748 and the beach was named that in 1804. And then there, the third part is this, a myth that um, is attached to his name that he was promised his freedom if he could walk, if the tides were low enough that he could walk from point A to point B without his feet ever getting wet. Um, and, and what I'm starting to kind of figure out is that that might have been an early abolitionist story kind of to get other Northerners to support the anti-slavery cause versus something that was kind of from his time period. It's a total myth, never even happened, right? But I'm very interested in how these myths get made and, um, and which ones stick around with us a little bit longer than the other ones. Whoa, that's really cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's really, yeah. really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrific project. Uh, I'm actually, my, I'm working on uh, a project related to another beach on Boston's North Shore, and that's Revere Beach. And it was a subject of my dissertation long ago, and I've been trying when I can, when I can find the time to, uh, you know, develop it into a book. And uh, Revere Beach was America's first public beach, in fact, this year is the 125th anniversary of Revere Beach. And uh, it was similar to Coney Island uh, in Brooklyn. It was an important uh, seaside resort for, you know, working in middle-class people. And, and I'm, I've been tracing the history of the beach over time and looking at it from a variety of angles. So I hope to get that book published, uh, you know, in, in the not too distant future. Great. Well, I can't wait to read both of those. Um, they sound extremely interesting. And I think you, you're just doing the work of enriching our uh, American studies, uh, literature and history um, just every day. Y'all are just the best. Um, so I want to thank you both so much for being here today. It's just been so great having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for asking, Sam. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, been it's been great. Thank you so much. Happy to participate. Well, listeners, um, I want to thank you two for being with us uh, and learning a little bit about the Salem Witch Trials with me today, uh, kind of taking a little microcosm or a little snapshot of what we did in our seminar uh, to the podcast today. And don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for the Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And if you like today's episode, subscribe and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Content to Classroom. Mm -hmm.